Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab's Alliances podcast series. I'm Kara Miller. There was a time when gains in tech weren't too tough to come by. You could say the living was easy. Basically, what happened was, if you want to double your performance, you don't do anything to your program. You just wait uh, uh, a year and the performance doubled. But, says Saman Amara Singhe, those days are gone. And in a world shaped by machine learning, boosting performance is going to require a new set of tools, which might shake up everything. If you write the description of what you want to get done, with that description, is it possible to write a program? So we are coming closer and closer to English. We are not there yet. But the next thing is, if we get to English, What's that? Is that a programmer? On today's show, Saman Amara Singhe. He's a professor in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at MIT and a principal investigator at CSAIL. And he joins us for a wide-ranging conversation about why computing has changed and what lies ahead. On July 6th, artificial intelligence made front-page news in the Wall Street Journal. Excitement over AI, they said, was helping boost the tech sector out of its 2022 doldrums, when the Nasdaq plunged more than 30%. The rise of AI and machine learning, it feels like a major inflection point for tech. But there's still a lot to play out if we want to understand what sort of inflection we're looking at. There's something happening with large language models. But it's hard to know because two things, these large language models, we have access to two things like GPT-3, GPT-4. They are still infants. And the thing about infants is it's really hard to know what they're going to be when they grow up. The first big large language model is, is, is only came about a year ago that we start tracking this. So we have this a year old infant that is just <laughs> going very fast and improving its capabilities. The interesting thing is, where will it land in year or two? Amara Singhe says that the split between those who are euphoric about where large language models are going and those who are pessimistic, it's a little bit too stark. When I talk to people, half the people say, oh, GPT-4 can't do this, 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 it's, it's not good. And so they are trying to look at the other part. Other group of people are so scared, saying, oh my God, this is going to do everything. It's going to take over humans. It's hard to find that middle ground saying, okay, it's going to stabilize in something because I don't think we know. Still, he notes, the potential is huge, but many people don't realize the problems that have to be overcome. Problems Amara Singhe thinks can be surmounted, but are not always acknowledged. Right now, Language models running, uh, training and inference is extremely expensive. So uh, it costs about hundreds of, about 100 million or plus, more than that, to actually train a model like a GPT-4. And still it's costing fair amount of, uh, uh, to basically do an inference, each token at a time, and you need a lot of tokens in there. So, in fact, we are looking at ways to make that faster and cheaper. And my hope is in two years, this will be cheaper. Because right now, at this cost, you can't just change something like a Google search to large language model and, and, and it will bankrupt Google because you can't get 
because it's too expensive. And there's another problem for machine learning. A lot of it, Amara Singhe says, isn't 100% accurate, a problem he thinks is going to continue. So the interesting thing here is there are a lot of problems. If you get a 99.9% accurate answer, you are okay. But the area I work on compilers, people expect the compiled program to be 100% accurate. Right. It's kind of unfortunate. I'd, r- I'd rather them not be uh, have that expectation. But <laughs> right, right. that is, is problematic in that sense because if, if machine learning say, I will do it, but once in a while I will do something buggy, people say, no, I don't want that. So how do we get from kind of accurate to very, very accurate? Well, you know how people use tools? Maybe large language models could too. My feeling is large language models, they're starting to do that. They will start using tools to basically overcome some of these deficiencies. So my hope is in two years, these large language models will have a bunch of tools they can use. And with the tools, they might be able to do a lot more that 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 Right now, today, things like GPT-4 is capable of doing. So it will be very interesting to see what that path is. Uh, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, basically run that uh, right now. We, I think it's kind of inflection point in this kind of thing. Run through with that would be very fun. In some ways, it's no surprise that Amara Singhang loves inflection points. His career, you could say, was built around one. An inflection point that has, much like AI, rocked and reshaped the tech industry. This particular inflection point started, unassumingly enough, when a guy in his mid-30s, a director of R&D at a semiconductor company, realized something. The number of transistors in an integrated circuit kept climbing. It was 1965 when he made the observation, and the engineer was named, of course, Gordon Moore. Moore's law shaped computing for half a century. It changed the fortunes of companies, and its disappearance coupled with the development of AI and machine learning, well, it's reshaping the tech landscape all over again. If you look at before Moore's Law, I will call it the time of the pioneers. The machines were very small. So our ambition was always larger than the machines. So to get anything out of the machines, you had to do incredible performance engineering hacks. Because the machines had little memory, little compute power, and we won't do more. So those days, it was all about low-level performance engineering to get anything done. Then we reached this golden age of Moore's Law. Basically, what happened was, if you want to double your performance, you don't do anything to your program. You just wait uh, a year, and the performance doubled. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in that time... The hard part was not you are lacking resources. What to do with the excess resources you get? So we we came up with a lot of new ideas, new ways to do that. But also when there's excess, there's a little bit of gluttony. So people became inefficient because there's no need for being efficient, no need to be concise. So there's a lot of that happened. Okay. And that help is a lot on the hardware side, right? The hardware will come and help you. Yeah, because what happened was I'm getting double the performance. If I don't need it, I can be more relaxed. I can be Mm -hmm. lot relaxed. I can can just use things, for example, to simplify my life than looking at performance. So a lot of people did things that you could have done a lot more efficiently, but you don't need to because you are getting all this performance. So Moore's Law ended about, I think, two decades ago, basically. But 
now we are hitting to a point now there's not much fat left at this point we have trimmed them out and then machine learning suddenly said we need a lot more performance things like machine learning training and inference required a lot of performance that right now we can't provide the hardware and software can't provide that they can use so there's a huge uh, renaissance of this performance engineering part that was in the pioneering year because okay. right now there's no free lunch so if you want to get performance we have to work for it and and so there was this entire middle part that nobody cared about it because the performance was free but now we have to go back to lot of these old techniques are coming back old thinking is coming back so this is very interesting in that sense let's talk about some of the specifics of your work maybe first it might be good for listeners who are a little bit less familiar with um sort of how a code that a programmer writes gets run on a piece of hardware um so do you want to talk a little bit about what that process looks like and then maybe insert yourself okay so normally people write in very high level language that's what we understand right and then a machine understand a much low level machine instructions so you need a translation from high level to low level so you give a high level set of instructions and you need to get a machine instruction mm-hmm. so if you have been following all these things about uh, machine learning you would say hey we know how to do translation you give the high level program to neural network and it will translate that's what google translate do everything but there's a small problem Google Translate and all these translate software if you get a 95 or 99% accuracy you are very happy but when you write a piece of program and when you run it translate you are expecting 100% accuracy so that you can't directly use machine learning hmm. so there are multiple ways of doing that if you want really high performance you write that program in language like C or perhaps uh, 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 java or uh, uh, julia or something like that mm-hmm. uh, if you i'll talk about language like c c the program runs through a set of processes called compilation a compiler takes the high level program not only it just translates it but analyze it trying to figure out how to get the best out of the hardware so and the compilation take a long time because it's looking at all the choices all the options to say okay how should i get the best out of the hardware and hopefully to produce a, a, a assembly program that can run on the machine that get the best performance or the uh, the our golden era of moore's law people realize i don't need performance why do i compile so bunch of very high efficiency languages emerge or easy programmable languages called dynamic languages a language like python they are the writing a program is very easy and there it doesn't get compiled it's called what you call interpreted so what that means is you are not you don't care about performance the language is very easy to write and there you at run time you figured out what do i need to do for to run this language and run that in here so lot of my work has focused more on the compilation side the places where you really really need high performance and how to do that and that's what i have been working on okay give me a sense of then how that connects to why focus on programming languages compilers for those post moore's law gains so if you want to have really really high performance for a small piece of code you can give it to engineer ask him to spend what a him or her to spend a year or six months and really optimize that 
for certain very small things and they will probably directly write in assembly language or whatever and get really good performance the problem is that very inefficient so what we want to do is we want to have the cake and eat it too we want to have programmers be effective productive so what that means is we would like them to write the programs very close to this this highly productive languages like python but then give them really really high performance so a lot of work i have been doing is to look at ways to get there so instead of asking programmers to do all these low level details spend hours or months optimizing something write it in a very highly productive way and then still give performance so one thing we have been working on is area called domain specific languages okay so if you look at something like c it's a general purpose language it's a one thing that fits everybody but if you look at how people program there are domains like graphics or computation biology or earth simulation they are doing some very specific task in here it's not one program they are doing set of tasks in that hmm. and in those set of tasks they also know certain things you can do they have learned over the years that get good performance so what domain specific languages try to do is capture those tasks natively and do these things we know how to get those run tasks run uh, faster So there's a added benefit that you got from doing domain specific languages because now we are trying to capture the domain at a very high level. So sometimes if you get a good domain specific language it becomes easier to program than writing in C or languages like that even without okay. optimization. So you write this program at a very higher level that is into the domain but the compiler and that domain specific language and its compiler knows how to take that and get really really good performance so for example about 10 to 12 years ago we developed this language called halide and at that point it was me and uh, professor fredo duran and jonathan regan kelly who's now a faculty at uh, mit but at that time he was a graduate student it was his phd hmm. that language was targeting graphics programmers because we understood the graphics programmers they, they spend months really optimizing programs because if you are trying to write a filter for for example photoshop that's not that easy it takes months to get that filter to perform so if you run it through a large picture it doesn't take minutes to do it can do in seconds and so we understood those things and that all the filters have certain patterns certain characteristics so this language halide took basically said okay tell me those filters in a much more higher level in this language and then we will deal with the kind of things you do for filters and basically get to good performance so it becomes easier for these people writing these graphics programs to write those programs and instead of they had to spend weeks to get tuned for performance they could do it in hours so hmm. that is the kind of things we try to do to get good performance Are you thinking a lot when you're doing this about sort of the efficiency and maybe even like the ease and experience of the programmers? Yes, lot of okay. times what happens is we need to capture what's important for programmers because a domain specific language can't do everything. But if it doesn't do important things for the programmer, they can't use it either. So we need to capture all the necessary components 
in a way that they it's useful for them. They can do what they wanted to do, uh, uh, solve their problems. But it gives you the ability to actually give good performance. If you put too many things, it becomes harder for compilers to work because it's become too mm. complicated. So you need to find the minimal instruction set of uh, uh, rules that we in incorporate in there that programmers can use. And then that will become a useful lang uh, domain-specific language. Do you expect that we're getting sort of efficient enough, uh, and I think programmers think about this, companies think about this, mm -hmm. that we will need fewer programmers within companies? That's a very interesting thing. So what a lot of my work has been to give this expert programmer knowledge to non-expert programmers. Uh -huh. So if you, beforehand, if you, for example, if you think about Taillight, to write that filter that goes to Photoshop, there's only very few people at uh, Adobe who was able to do things like that. It is a very expert something that you have been trained for a long time in there. What Halide said was, okay, you can have a lot more thousand people who can at least write, understand the filter, can write it and get that expert level performance. So we have always tried to make it possible for more people to use that, but that didn't change the number of people uh, part in there. Uh, perhaps it was faster for them, so you didn't need that much time, so it probably reduced the workload in there. So that was going forward. But now, with things like large language models in there, there's a very interesting thing in that, because can some of these things we have to tell uh, the and write programs, can it be done a lot more automatically? So right. for example, if you write the description of what you want to get done, with that description, is it possible to write a program? Mm -hmm. It's not there yet, but there's these early indications that that direction might be possible. So for example, in five, 10 years, the programming might be more of writing English and telling them what didn't work and, and having that conversation than actually going there and sitting and coding at a low-level language. Right. We have always, when we started programming, we programmed in assembly language. We programmed very, very low-level. And then when we went to languages like Fortran and C, we raised the bar. And then some Python, you raised the bar again. So we are coming closer and closer to English. We are not there yet. But the next thing is, if we get to English, what's that? Is that a programmer? Is that a, a, a user? Who is that person? They right. still will have to understand how to instruct a, 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 the computer. They can't be just anybody. So there's be a certain level of knowledge, understanding, and education to do that. But they might be educated at a much different level. So this is what's very fascinating, what it's going to be in uh, uh, next uh, 10 years. Obviously, I think it's probably clear the number of programmers might go down, the amount of need, because there's a lot of menial things normal programmers do. A lot of those things can be automated, like okay. maintaining, developing websites, maintaining websites, doing this lot of menial parts that a lot of programmers, right now you have, I need programmers to do, might get automated. Hmm. But where it ends up is, I think, anybody's guess. Right, right, right. Because as I think it's an interesting question, like, who then is a programmer? What do you call mm -hmm. those people if they're employed in a company? You know, maybe they aren't programmers, but they're something. 
and what does their skill set look yeah. like? I mean, even within programmers, there's this argument that real programmers only write C or real programmers only write <laughs> assembly. Yeah. Everybody else who's doing higher level, they're not real programmers. So, so there's even that argument. So the next time, so for example, a, a, a product manager normally will write a description in English and the data in probably Excel spreadsheet saying, yes, right. what I want. And right. they normally hand it into uh, the program who actually programs it. Uh, and now it might be they hand it to chat GPT or whatever it is that will mm-hmm. actually write the program. So there's an interesting part in there. Um, finally, uh, two big picture questions. One is um, just what is the biggest challenge that you see uh, like sort of staring us in the face right now that maybe, you know, maybe doesn't get covered enough in the media. Maybe people are not talking about enough, but like, is there a challenge that you think is out there? So the interesting thing right now is computing is dominant. Computing is everywhere. Mm-hmm. So if you look at your cell phones to uh, your laptops to data centers, it's taking fair amount of energy in the world. So as we go and think about global warming, even yeah. your uh, iPhone doesn't look that much and, and doesn't seem that much. There are uh, When you have a billion of these kind of devices, yeah. it adds up. So part of that is, even though you don't feel like, okay, I don't need any more efficiency, it's good enough, I can charge it. I think to reduce the energy use, reduce the uh, uh, the amount of this consumption at, at even at this small level, that doesn't seem that much. When everybody has now not one, two or three devices, it yes. adds up. So there's a lot that has to happen, even though you don't see the need yourself to make things efficient, make things uh, less energy consuming. As a global, as a societal thing, I think that's very important. So there has to be a lot more, I think, done uh, in that direction. When things are slow for us, we'll say, okay, we need to make it run faster, more efficient. Or if you are running something very large and something like AWS start charging you hundreds of thousands of dollars, you say, okay, look, it's expensive. I want to make it cheaper. Yeah. But that, that part, it's, it doesn't have to hit that kind of bars. Because the things like small devices, everything, the sum total is taking a lot of world's energy. So how to reduce that, I think is very important. That I don't think gives that much attention at this point. Hmm. We uh, talked to Vivian C. last time about that. And she mm-hmm. really, something she really focuses on. And I think, as you say, people do not think that much about that sort of energy and global warming dimension. Mm-hmm. Of the phone in their hand, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what we are trying to do. Like, for example, every additional instruction you need to run on this thing is, is, is using additional energy. So what compilers try to do, and a lot of my research is to make things very efficient. Right now, it basically, to get traction, we do it where it's really needed, like things like machine learning or these very large systems that you... that performance is very critical then it's it's obvious they're like okay i need this i can use it right. but it, it should be needed and it should be taken advantage of in things where it's not obvious that i need it but but if if billion people uh, uh, reduce their energy consumption in their devices by 50 percent, that's going to have a huge impact in the world 
finally, I know you've done a lot with uh, MIT's Global Startup Labs, which mm-hmm. helps create startups around the world. I just wonder, you've got a big view here. Um, do you feel like the startup ecosystem is healthy? Do you notice big, big geographical differences? I just wonder what you see, because most people kind of don't have that high-level view. So one thing very interesting is these days, how easy it to build something. So when I did my, we'll say, first or second startup, to even to get something going, you need to buy computers, you need to buy office space, you need to buy this, you need to do that. Mm-hmm. You need to have a pretty large budget to just do anything, just to get out of the door if you're doing right. anything related in there. Right now, if you're sitting in uh, a dormitory as a student or something, you can basically build a product to a point it can get users with almost no money. Hmm. Because assume you already have a computer, you can go to Amazon AWS, you can get these tools, stuff like that, open source, libraries, you can do amazing things in, in very little money. So so the especially in the IT side, the dramatic jump is huge. So let me tell a little bit of story about Global Startup Labs. Sure. So what happened was, in US, if you have a good idea, it's ha- easy to get access to capital. There's a VC ecosystem, lot of ecosystem that is looking at the idea. It doesn't look at who you are. You go to a lot of other countries, especially developing countries, and capital is restricted mainly. It's, it, it's mostly hereditary. If, okay. if, you, if you're born to capital, you have access to capital. Mm-hmm. If not, it's very hard to get to get access to capital. Only way a, a bank loan is if you have to if you give some collateral. Right. So if you are a student who came from a poor family or even a middle class family, it's very hard to get access to capital. So in that in lot of these systems, people don't even think about doing startup because that was out of question. Mm-hmm. So one thing we realized about 20 years ago was with the advent of smartphones or even before the phones, there are a lot of opportunities that doesn't require that much capital. So Global Startup Lab was born to send a couple of MIT students to like a, a mostly developing country, go to a university, take 20 students and say, look around you. What problem can we solve using... Uh, 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 your phone. Mostly it's mm-hmm. phone because people didn't have access to computer. Your phone in there. Right. Uh, okay. Let's see whether you can build a prototype to solve this problem. Let's see whether you can uh, uh, make a company out of it. Okay. Talk about both the entrepreneurship side of building a company and also the technology side of because a lot of these universities in fact didn't teach them with that much practical knowledge. Look like how to build an app. How to program your phone. How to build a, a backend for an app in a uh, on um, something like the Android, mostly Android operating system and stuff like that. Okay, okay. So we, we trained them and a lot of interesting ideas came about in these things. Uh, for example, f- starting from a uh, lot of these places uh, don't have good healthcare, so you have to be proactive. So how do you know when a kid needs the next uh, injection or next vaccination? Mm-hmm. Right, so right. you can build a very simple app 
that basically uh, record those things and send a reminder say okay now it's five years you need to guess so things like mm-hmm. that builds very simple apps in there the, the other interesting thing is beforehand to build a multinational you need billions of dollars millions of dollars in there because you need to understand countries you have to go there open offices hire people in there right now with all these tools available you can have a multinational product without going anywhere so in sri lanka one of the startups came out of this thing called four axis solutions they have a drawing app called drawing desk on on iphone they said okay we'll just create this app ourselves and they within sri lanka not these the two people who started the company didn't haven't even left sri lanka they came from a kind of a middle class poor middle class background so they haven't even left the country and within the country they sit there wrote this app and they start basically using all the tools available market it you in china market in the us market it in like mm. what 100 countries and right now if you go to the iphone marketplace and you look at uh, uh, this productivity apps it is ranked higher than amazon uh, higher than uh, adobe's app it sometimes rank at number 2 or number 3 productivity app all run from now they have a nice office but before and like one person office one room office in sri lanka never leaving it and they were able to create this entire like a multinational organization that is basically in 100 countries selling this app wow. and and that is incredible that able to do that uh, in there with 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 very limited resources very limited uh, knowledge even everything is basically gathered from the web gathered from uh, internet and 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 they have hired people outside in china other places to help them out but but they they they're sitting in there so so that's right. very interesting so that's hmm. that's in a developing environment even in us i see so many students that taking a, a, at mit are just trying out these things if you have an idea you don't need a, a million dollars to basically try it out you can do it in in probably $1000 sometimes even less so right. there, there's a lot of there's lot of democratization of creating ideas in there of course at some point you need money some point you need professional support stuff like that but to get something going testing something out is right now there's no pl- time that's it's cheaper it's easier right right that's so interesting the landscape has really changed mm-hmm. samana marasinghe is a professor in the department of electrical engineering and computer science at mit he's a principal investigator at csail saman thank you so much this is great thank you so much for talking to me this was a lot of fun If you're interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at cap.csail.mit.edu and listen to our podcast series on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Kara Miller. Our show is produced by Matt Purdy. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast and stay ahead of the curve.